I thank you as a church, Cornerstone Bible Church, for your love for the gospel, your love for what God is continuing to continuing to accomplish in the Czech Republic, uh, for you investing year after year after year for all the years. Uh, fruit is being born, as you've heard of. Thank you for sending the last summer team this very summer. We were so encouraged to be able to work with them and being ministered to by them. A very encouraging, very joyful time seeing God use them there in the Czech Republic among atheists to testify of our great and living God. Thank you for your warm welcome to us also, to Sonia and I. Uh, we are so blessed every time we're with you in fellowship. You guys are at the top of our list, really, in terms of those that we are most encouraged by in Christ and uh, just the love that you share with us in the gospel. Thanks for the beautiful welcome basket in the room and just all the things, the camp t-shirt. I know I should have worn that, but uh, we are so delighted to be able to be those that know Christ and have been redeemed by him. Uh, I just marvel to hear the testimony earlier by uh, C, C, R, C, RJ, RJ and Eliza. Uh, I can only think as they, they share what God has done, where sin abounded grace all the more, right? And we all have come to the level at that point, having our sins taken care of by the greatness of our God. And so uh, praise God for how he's saving people, how he's transforming them and making them his worshipers. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us together. Father, that you are a God that is with us. That you are a God who is mighty to save. And Father, that you are a God that transforms lives. We've heard the testimony. And Father, as we look around and see even those seated around us, in front of us, behind us. Oh God, that each is a testimony. Each is a amazing demonstration of your power in the gospel to save and to regenerate and make those that were your enemies your friends. And God, to make us your worshipers, we rejoice. And Father, we thank you now that as we go to your word, that you are one who assists us, to cause us to see there all that you have prepared for us so that we would leave more transformed, more changed, more like your son and our savior. And so we give this time to you with much thanksgiving and expectation. In Christ's name, amen. We continue our theme in worship and walking with God. We've looked into the Psalms thus far. We began in Psalm 34, where we see the psalmist being overwhelmed with God, then overflows and prays to God. And then Psalm 19, the glory of God revealed in his creative works, and then also in his word with, with which he uses to speak to us. We worship God when we see who he is in creation and also in his word and his revelation. Then we saw last night in Psalm 101 that those who worship God must worship him with integrity of heart, with no compromise. And as we think about these things, we realize that's my life desire, that's my ambition. And it is hard. It's not easy. The path which we trod as Christians faces many different things and many unexpected roadblocks, hurdles that we face. And we realize that we desperately need God to help us on the journey of life. And so look with me as the encouragement that God gives us in Psalm 121, strength for life's journey. Psalm 121. These words of Psalm 121 have been a great encouragement to many through the years that have walked with God and have sought to worship him as he desires for them to do. When David Livingston was 27 years old, he read this very psalm to his parents before embarking upon a life of missionary work in Africa. 
And these words from this chapter sustained him in that arduous life mission. And they have sustained many, many more Christians, troubled travelers, who have turned to this psalm to find tranquil trust. So look with me at our psalm, Psalm 121, and be encouraged by the words of God to us. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. This is God's word to us today. Here in this text, we see the unmanned, I'm sorry, unnamed writer answer four pressing questions for us as travelers along the, along the journey of life and how we're to worship God when it gets tough, when things are hard. Four questions that are answered in this psalm. First of all, in verse 1, why we need help. Why we need help. And then in verse 2, who is our helper? Verses 3 through 7 then, how does God help us? And lastly, verse 8, when does God help us? Why we need help? Who is our helper? How does God help us? And then, when does God help us? Well, let's begin with the first question. Why we need help? Christian, we need to understand, we need to get, grasp the sense of why we, as those that are called to worship God, so desperately need his assistance and his help in our lives. The poet, in that very first verse, he says, from where will my help come? In other words, what is the source of my help? Who will come to my assistance? Who will strengthen me in my weakness? Now, what makes him ask that question, who will help me? The phrase that comes right before his question tells us, look there. He says the very part in verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. I will lift my eyes to the mountains. Now, why would looking at the mountains cause this pilgrim traveler to think about his need for help. What's the correspondence there? How does it tie together? You see, for a Jew, when a Jew would travel on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would do that three times a year. Three different feasts that would cause them to come and see and gather with God's people. There was the wilderness area of Judea that they would have to pass through that was filled with dangers that lurked along the way. There was thick overgrowth as well as treacherous ravines. And in the, those areas, would be those robbers as well as wild animals that would hide to attack them when they least expected that. Such dangers would fill the hearts of those pilgrims, Jews, that would be coming to the feast there in Jerusalem. We think of the pitiful man who was on his, on his trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, the return trip back, and he was attacked. And Christ recounts in Luke chapter 10 how he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and left him half dead the same area that they traveled through there in the Judean wilderness. Now, in contrast to those threats on the journey, the mountains that surrounded Jerusalem also symbolized God's protecting presence, God protecting his people. That was a symbol of that for the Jewish people. As weary travelers completed the last leg of their journey and approached Mount Zion, the holy city, they would see that was elevated. It was mountainous, as it were. 
Now notice with me Psalm 122, the next psalm. And by the way, this is a series of psalms. These are the psalms of ascent when they would go up to Jerusalem. And I believe these series of psalms are written in chronological order. In Psalm 122, the next psalm, verse 1, we see the travelers there have already arrived in Jerusalem after the trek to Jerusalem. And in verse 1 we read, David says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, note there, that is built as a city that is compact together. City that is built together. It's elevated there for the people to see from a distance as they came. So it worked like this. As the the Jewish travelers were coming to Jerusalem, their hearts would be overwhelmed with the sight. There they would see the eastern gate of Jerusalem. There they would see this is home to us. This represents a place of security and safety. We have reached our destination. And that symbolized being at home. We're here where we ought to be, gathered together as God's people. Those that are foreigners now brought together in a place of security, a place of protection as it were. We'd been about a year in the Czech Republic, still very much feeling as foreigners there, very uncomfortable with the language in Czech, making more mistakes than we knew, you know. And there was a day I had to go down to the Czech embassy, actually the American embassy there in Prague. And so go down there to deal with passport issues. And I remember getting off the tram and walking up the cobblestone street. As as I walked up the cobblestone street, at the top of the street, I could see waving the, the stars and stripes, the American flag. And I'm not typically that kind of a patriotic person. But after you're sensing I'm a foreigner here, different language, different people, I'm kind of out of sync. And then to see that, I thought, whoa, it's okay. There's home, there's protection. There's a place here that I'm familiar, familiar with in the embassy. So to these Jewish people are saying, we're home. We're here, we're here in Jerusalem. There's refuge, there's safety, there's protection. Now look in Psalm 125 with me. How the mountains there for the psalmist stand for God's protection of his people. And it's laid out in Psalm 125. Notice in the second verse of Psalm 125. We read, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. Isn't that good? A visual reminder of how God protects his people were the mountains of Jerusalem. And Psalm 48 and the second verse. We read, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Again, those mountains represent God's protection for his people. And so now in our psalm, Psalm 121, the poet with grateful joy, he approaches that Mount Zion, which stood for God's presence and power for his people. We see this actually throughout the scriptures particularly the Old Testament, that God's people are reminded that he is near to them, he protects them, he's with them, and the area of Jerusalem there, the mountains remind them of that. Isaiah 30, verse 29, it points to the hope that God has given for his people in the future, the Jews. And it says what God would do for his people. You'll have songs as in the night when you keep the festival, and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute, to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. You approach Jerusalem, God says here, and you come to the place of hope. It symbolizes hope and protection for you, my people, God says. Now we must appreciate there's deep significance here in that area of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount area. 
because that Temple Mount area that was elevated, actually now through all the history of 2,000 years, it's more filled in. If you go to Jerusalem today, you say, where's the mountain? Because all the battles and all the rubble that have been filled in, hundreds of feet have been filled, so that's not so much recognized as a mountain area. But that area of Mount Zion, that is where God specifically chose to show his dwelling among his people. That very location is where we see in Genesis 22, that is Mount Moriah. That is where we know that Abraham took his only son Isaac, prepared to sacrifice him to the Lord. And that is the very Mount area upon which Solomon built the great temple, there on Mount Moriah, there on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so therefore we see in our, in our psalm, Psalm 121, the psalmist recognizes his need for help and protection from God. Why? Because there are dangers that are facing him on the journey that he takes. Now this is for us as well this morning. We also face issues and dangers and problems in our life, in the journeys of life, the journey of life that God has before us. We too must realize that God has made for us himself as the protector of our souls when we face things that we come up against. Praise God, he never tells us, figure out your problems yourself. Instead, he shows us, number two, who is to be our helper? Who is our helper? Number, verse two, look there. In response to the psalmist's question, from where shall my help come? He now answers, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Helper does not guarantee an easy, trouble-free life. That's not what it's saying. But it guarantees God's help for us along that tough journey. That God is there to help us in spite of what comes. The term help there, it pictures strong military support and assistance in the time of battle. When warfare's on, there's help. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 18, the leader of David's mighty men gave strong encouragement against enemy raiders. And this is what that leader of the mighty men tells David. Peace, peace to you, and peace to him who helps you. Indeed, your God helps you. Isn't that great? David's there told, David, listen, enemies out there, your God helps you. Count on it. He's your helper. And that's where the writer of our psalm turns for help. He turns to God. He looks to God personally. In the midst of all the difficulties, he does not trust in himself. He does not trust in his fellow travelers. He trusts in God alone. He looks to the Lord. And therefore, there's where he finds help. Corey Tenboom faced amazing difficulty and appalling conditions in the Nazi SS concentration camp in Ravensbrück. There in that camp, she saw her own sister, Betsy, die before her eyes. And later, Corey Tenboom would write this about that whole experience. Look around and be distressed. Look inside and be depressed. Look at Jesus and be at rest. She understood so well. You look around, you look inside, there's nothing to help the soul, but you look to Jesus and you will be at rest. Someone put it well. When the outlook is bad, remember the uplook. Look to your helper, look to God. He is the one who will always come through for you. And that is what the psalmist does here in our text. He looks to the Lord and he's saying, God, you and you alone are the one that I will look to for my help, nothing else. 
David knew the same. We're not sure who wrote our psalm. It could have been David also. But in chapter 30 of the psalm, Psalm 30, verse 10, he echoes the same hard cry for God to be the one who he would cling to for help. He says, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, my helper. Isn't that neat? So personal. O Lord, you are my helper. I'm crying out to you, and I know I can count on you. Last time in the message, we were reminded of God's unfailing presence with us in Hebrews 13. There, the writer writes to the Hebrew saints and tells, tells them, and he tells us, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. But it doesn't stop there. It then says, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Isn't that great? God is our helper. No one can do anything to us. He is all we need, Christian. So mark it well. God, here in our text, binds himself to his promise that he will be the one who is the helper of his own. He was always there to help us in any time, any situation, any trial that we face. Friends, this assurance is everything that we must cling to when we are spiritually fatigued, when things are hard, when we're worn out, when we can't see straight. God is our personal helper. He and another he and no other one is the one that can meet our every need. He is enough for us in our most difficult days and our most unnerving trials. God as our personal helper. This is his promise to us. Charles Spurgeon write, wrote this. You may expect that between here and heaven, if you have not met with it yet, you will have enough trouble to destroy you unless the Lord is your helper. I love that. There's enough, enough trouble between here and heaven, Christian, to destroy you unless you remember and count the fact that God is your helper. So cling to him. If God does not help, then we are helpless. But God is our helper. Therefore, we have all the help we need in time of need. Now back to our text there, right there in Psalm 121. We see here the word Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal covenant name that he gives to his people that says, I will always keep my word to you. You can always count upon me. It is mentioned eight times here in the verses of, I'm sorry, in eight verses it is showcased six different times. Six different times the word Yahweh is repeated in our text. And it tells us that God is our God, he keeps his promises, and that God is a personal God, that his immediacy is always there. We can count upon that. He is ready to act on our behalf. He is ready to help us as his own. You, know, you look at what's happening in different churches throughout our land. What's happening in the state of contemporary Christianity. Contemporary Christianity is inundated with self-help books, self-help seminars, self-help self conferences, self-help courses. And they are empty. They can do nothing for the Christian who is needing help in time of need. The traveler here in our text, the writer included, does not look to self-help, but to save your help in time of need. God, I need you. I count on you, and I know that you will come through for me. He turns to God. Now look at the way he describes the God to whom he turns in time of need, in time when he desperately needs God's help. He calls him the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord who made heaven and earth is the one he's thinking about who he knows will help him in his dire time of need. 
What we're seeing here is this. The writer's thoughts leap beyond the mountains to the universe. And they move beyond the universe to the maker of it all. This is the one he is clinging to as his helper, the maker of heaven and earth. There's an argument here that the writer's using that is, we see characteristic throughout the scriptures. He's moving from the, from the greater to the lesser. The writer is affirming in his own mind that the God whom, of whom he speaks has mind-boggling power to create the entire universe, the cosmos. And if he can do that with no problem, then surely he has ample power to protect him as a pilgrim that's wandering in time of need. You see, Christian, all of God's inherent power shown in speaking the worlds into existence is at his fingertips available to help us in our time of need. That's massive. That's incredible. We have it all in the creator God who has made himself known to us. If you look ahead to Psalm 124 and verse 8, you see that David made that incredible connection. He needs help from God, and the God that he turns to is the God that's the maker of it all. Psalm 124 and verse 8, Our help is in the name of the Lord, and look what follows, who made heaven and earth. That's so good. What's God like who's available to help us? He's the maker of it all. Jeremiah 32, 17, the prophet there exclaims, O oh Lord, God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. What's Jeremiah thinking about? He's thinking about his situation. He's perplexed. He's overwhelmed. He says, God, you did it all. My situation isn't too difficult for you. So, friend, the next time you find yourself deep in trial and feel yourself sinking, and not knowing what to do, overwhelmed by it all, you need to bring to your mind the truth of our text right here. The all-powerful creator is the one upon whom you're to call. That's the way you are to view God, the creator of it all, who is unlimited in his omnipotent strength. And when you do that, when you think rightly about God and cry out to him for help, what happens? It shrinks your, problem, your problems into perspective right? We can be so overwhelmed with problems that face us, what's going on in our lives, our families, our ministries, it's right there, and they become so big. When we think about God, the God who created everything imaginable, is there to help us, our problems take proper perspective. Now let's work this out in our minds, how it works out, how it ought to be seen. Take all the problems that seem to be heavy on your shoulders right at this time, all the problems that you can imagine coming down the way, the specific things that you're concerned about, then in your mind, often. Take those all together and put them on one side of the scale. And then take the omnipotent, powerful God who is infinite in his strength, who made everything imaginable, and put that on the other side of the scale. And when you do that, what do you see? You see that there's no comparison. Your problems are nothing. They're absolutely nothing compared to the greatness and power of God that is available to you to help you in your time of need. There is no impossible situation, Christian. There is no discouragement. There is no failure too big for God to fix. He can do it all, and he's available to us as our helper. God created it all. He reigns over all supremely, and that qualifies him to be our all-sufficient help and strength in our time of need. He is there for us. 
William Edwards was a British official who was caught in the midst of the Indian mutiny in 1857. He didn't know how long he had lived. He had managed, managed, managed to escape so far and what was going on. And he took a moment in the midst of the battle to write this note to a friend. Nothing new has been settled and we are much harassed. Heavy guns are firing today. They remind us painfully of our fearful proximity to that place where so many are thirsting for our lives. In other words, we could be killed immediately. And then he adds this. Amidst it all, the Psalms are most consoling and wonderfully suited to our cause, especially the 121st Psalm. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. What happened? He thought of the battle. He thought of possibly he could be killed immediately. Then he thought of God, who made everything that he was available to help him in his time of need. That man took great solace in personalizing what sustained his soul. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's the source of my strength. That's the source of my help. God who made everything. It comes from him. We desperately need help on our journey. We desperately need to remember that God is our great helper who is powerful to do it all. But how? How does God help us in our time of distress? What does he do? Here's where God's help to us becomes so specific in our lives, beginning in verse 3. Here we see it applied to the life situation of that psalmist. We are told that the Lord will not allow your foot to slip. That very phrase is used often. We often don't see it. After God gave to Hannah her boy Samuel, she used that same metaphor. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 9, she's praising God and she says this to God, he, God, keeps the feet of his godly ones. He keeps their feet. They won't slip is the idea. And then Psalm 66, verse 8. The writer that assures us of the keeping power of God. Bless our God, O peoples, and sound his praise abroad, who keeps us in life and does not allow our foot to slip. You see, when the foot slips, the whole body slips, the whole person goes. There's disaster. That's what the author of our psalm is talking about. That's what he's emphasizing. The travelers feared slipping on the, on the trail as they went toward Jerusalem on that path in the Judean hills. We're supposed to identify with that thought. We're supposed to kind of think about what would it be like. Imagine you're the traveler. You're walking toward Jerusalem on an uneven path in the mountains. And then a terrifying thought races through your mind. What if all of a sudden, my foot slips off the rock. I lose my stability, and I fall to a disastrous end. And then all of a sudden, you realize the author's saying here, that cannot happen with God. It tells us God is our helper. He will not allow our foot to slip. He will never allow us to slip and fall from his care. That's the idea here. Why is it impossible for our feet, Christians, spiritually to slip from God's care? Why can it not happen? Look at verse 3. It tells us, because he keeps you. He keeps you. Now this says so much. The word keeps there is shamar. It gives us the main point of this chapter because it's repeated six different times like Yahweh is also. The personal God is a God who keeps. It pictures one who watches over another by preserving and guarding that person. It's surrounding a person with personal 
protection. It's like a bodyguard for the soul. That's what David, is, the author, is talking about here. It's the personal help of God to his one in need of help. And something that's fascinating that happens in the psalm right here. In verses 1 through 2, the writer is talking about using the first person I and my first person. But now in verses 3 through 6, he moves to the second person, you and your. Now he's saying it's not just about me, it's about you, Christian believers. This applies to you. God's help is for you that trust in him. As you travel life, it's for you. It's ever-present. Now notice how in verse 3 the writer continues. He who keeps you will not, what? He will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. This is beautiful. This is a wonderful description about God who keeps us as our helper. Our God, Christian, never gets tired like we do. He never sleeps. He never even takes a nap. You know, the pagan gods of the people, even in the Old Testament times and New Testament times, they thought of them as gods who were like people, who had weaknesses, and sometimes needed to sleep. And they were afraid that in their time of need, maybe our God is sleeping. We know this to be true because Elisha, they're on Mount Carmel, with the prophets of Baal. Remember what he said to them? He said, you better crouch to God because maybe, perhaps, he is asleep and needs to be awakened. Right? Maybe your God's sleeping, therefore you can't get what you want. Beloved, our God never sleeps, never rests. He shows sleepless vigilance on our behalf. Always, continual, and never ceases. Therefore, we can always trust in his availability to come through to, for us and aid us in our time of help. There's an ancient Eastern account of a poor lady who came to a wealthy sultan and a royal prince one day. She, she was asking for help from him. And she begged him to compensate for her loss of property. And so the sultan said to her, well, how did you lose it? I fell asleep, replied the lady. And a robber at that time when I was sleeping entered my house. So the sultan asked her, well, why did you fall asleep? The lady replied, I fell asleep because I thought you were awake. The sultan was so amazed and so pleased with her answer that he ordered her to be compensated for all her loss. Our God never sleeps. He's always there guarding, watching, protecting us and our souls as his children. Christian, you need to bear in mind that it's so precious, so wonderful that our God, our protector, our helper never sleeps. Because our enemy also never sleeps. Our enemy, the devil of our souls, the enemy of our souls never sleeps. Ephesians 6 verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Christian, God is always there for you to protect you, to guard your soul from all evil, including from Satan himself. He is always on the Lord to protect you from spiritual attack and to watch over you in the day, at night, all the time. Let that personal truth, this wonderful truth, buoy up your soul when you're tempted to fear, when you're tempted to become anxious. And there are those times that we face as his children let it be what God brings to your mind to encourage you, that gives you sleep to your body at night, that allows you to go to sleep saying, all is well with my soul because God 
protects it. God is there as the one who protects me from all evil. There's a ship captain who one day decided that he would take his family with him on the ship that he would pilot from Liverpool to New York. And so they got on the ship, and as they crossed the ocean one night, while the passengers were fast asleep, a storm hit that ship, and waves began to crash upon that ship's deck. Every passenger on board was instantly awakened. They, be, they began to get their clothes on, expecting they would have to go to the lifeboats, and that there would be a catastrophe. On board that ship was a little eight-year-old girl, the daughter of that ship captain. After waking up, she wanted to know only one thing. She asked her mother, Mom, is father on deck? Is father on deck? As soon as she was assured that the, her father, the pilot, was on deck, she laid her head back on, the pillow, on her pillow and fell fast asleep. As soon as she was sleeping, she was in perfect relax. She knew that it was all okay. How was it that that little girl could be freed of her fear? What made the difference? Because she knew her father could be trusted in the storm. She knew her father could be trusted in the worst storm, therefore it was okay, all is well when father is on deck at the wheel. This is the same for us, isn't it? All is well, all is okay. We can trust when God is there in the midst of the worst storms of life that he has it all in control. He is our help in our time of need. Now there's even more of God's personal care that unfolds here. As we travel the path of life, notice in verse five, we are assured of another statement here. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. That metaphor of shade is beautiful. It's important because what follows, it says what the shade does, how it protects us. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Here's the idea. The idea of shade is protection. It protects you. It shields the traveler from the burning rays of the sun that could cause unbearable fatigue and even sunstroke on the journey. The shade provides protection from the sun. But what about the moon by night? You know, scholars study this. Some people believe that during this time, there was this idea that during, that when the moon shined, full moon, that people kind of went crazy. That's kind of an idea they had, which wasn't true, of course. That could be part of it. But I think actually the better interpretation is that in contrast to the burning heat of the sun during the day is that the, the coolness of the night when the moon shined. God shields us from both extremes, the heat of the day and the coolness of the night. Both ends. God is there as our protector, protects our souls. Isaiah took great consolation in this personal protection of God for his children. And he writes in Isaiah 49, verse 10, They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. Why not, Isaiah? He says, for he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. God protects his children. God protects them in day and night and all times by his personal presence. What a wonderful metaphor that God has given to us in himself that he is the shade for us. Think about it, you walk outside and you have this shade, it's just like stuck to your body. It's part, almost part of you, so close to you, you can't get away from it. And that's the idea we're to have of God's personal protection upon us. He's right there with us in any situation. He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our shelter that protects us and refreshes us in all times. Friends, 
This is the consoling truth that gets the child of God through even the most oppressive and difficult and burdensome days of our lives. We will face them. If you haven't faced them yet, we will face those amazing times that God, what is going on? I can't figure this out. And he calls us to trust in him. David in Psalm 17, in the eighth verse, Psalm 17, eight, he affirms this and he prays to God. God, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And that's what God does for his children. He keeps us, he hides us in his personal protection. And Psalm 57, verse one, the psalmist prays, be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. Do you do that, Christian? Do you view God that way? That's anthropomorphism. We know that God doesn't have wings, but the idea is like little chicks run to the mother hen. That's where we need to go. God, I need comfort, I need protection, I need refuge, and I run to you to find that protection in your wings, as it were. Psalm 91, verse 1. It affirms to our souls that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The shadow of the Almighty. Listen, there is no greater place to be than in the shelter and shadow of God, the Almighty. That's the place to run to. That's the place to stay in times of turmoil. For there is no force in the world, there's no force in the universe that can overpower God's watch care over his child as we run to him and find refuge in him. Now, how can we understand all these statements of God's care for us? How does it work? Are Christians guaranteed that they will never fall and never get hurt? Do believers never get sunburned or suffer sunstroke? Is this psalm a blanket promise of freedom from all physical harm? What is the psalmist saying? Because he's used a lot of examples of physical protection. Not at all. It's far more than that. It's far more than physical protection. For here the issue and root of it all is that God promises us the greatest protection possible. Look at verse 7. There we see the Lord will protect you from all evil. And look what follows. He will keep your soul. He will keep your soul. This is the essence of it all that God says that I'm all about for you as my child. Here we're given the big idea of God's care for us. God protects us from every form of evil that assaults our souls, the true you, what's eternal. Mark well also the word all. The Lord will protect you from all evil, no exception, nothing left out. Praise God, here we see there is no type of evil possible we will ever face that he will not guard our souls from. Everything. God says, I will protect your soul from that. You're unshakable. He will hold me fast, we sang about earlier. And we often like to sing in Michigan, we look at each other and say, he will hold you fast. Seeing God's truth back to one another. He promises here that he will hold our souls fast forever. The Apostle Paul, he clung to this throughout his life ministry. He faced unbelievable, torturous, arduous suffering, but his eyes were on God as his keeper and helper of his soul. The last words that are recorded for us in Scripture from the pen of the Apostle Paul are in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. At that point, he's awaiting death by Nero, but he shows his unswerving faith in God 
the protector of his soul. And look what he says. Listen to what he says there. His last words. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I'm okay. Nero could kill me. My soul is safe. He will keep me until his heavenly kingdom. Yes, God so often keeps us from accidents, accidents on the road. God often answers prayer and stops cancers and diseases that would destroy our physical lives. But the greatest demonstration of divine protection is that God keeps our souls from all spiritual harm. This is it. This is everything for the Christian. Our souls are safe in the hands of God who protects us forever. He holds us fast to him. We are safe in his arms. Now let's look to the fourth, the last verse. The fourth question, when does God help us? When does God help us? And let us drink this truth in to the depths of our souls. Verse eight, the Lord will guard your going out and your coming in, how long? From this time forth and forever. This is beautiful. You're going in, you're coming in, and you're going out. I believe what it's talking about is that workers there in Jerusalem, there in Israel, would often go out of town to work in the fields. And then in the evenings, they'd come back in to the towns. They'd go out where it wasn't safe. They'd come back to their, into their home areas, the towns. That going out and coming into work represented their daily undertakings of life. And so the idea here is in everything you do, God is your spiritual bodyguard in everything, every part. Going out, coming in. Every, nothing's left out. This is living with the deep down confidence of God's blessing and protecting your life in everything you do, Christian, before him. Now it says, you're going out, you're coming in. I need reminders of my Christian life. I need to think specifically, tangibly, hooks as it were that I can hang my biblical thoughts on, that I see that remind me God's creation is a huge, massive one. But one that's helpful as well is going out and coming in the threshold that you cross over every day at least once or twice, at least twice, right? As you walk out, you're going out from your home and coming in. Let that threshold be a reminder to you as you step over it to go out to your work, whatever you do, and come in back to, to home that God's the one who is the one who guards you. You're going out and you're coming in. Tell yourself that truth. I go out today and God is the, God is the one who promises he'll protect my soul from all harm, from all evil. This wonderful assurance is what Moses writes of in Deuteronomy 28, 6. He says to God's people, blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. The idea is all the time. You're coming in, you're going out. Every single time God is there to be with you and protect you. Remember Jacob the deceiver in Genesis? He was a conniver. He always was doing his conniving and all that. And he ripped off Esau with a birthright. In Genesis 28, he's afraid. He's running from Esau, who Esau wants at this point to kill him. He's afraid of, of dying under his brother's hand. He has a great consolation from God. God makes him a promise. And God tells Jacob in Genesis 28, verse 15, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob, it's okay. Your brother wants you dead. I'm with you. I will accomplish all my perfect purposes. Therefore, you need not fear. 
It's the same for us, believers. Everywhere we go as God's children, we are guarded by God. He protects us. He will accomplish his perfect purposes in our lives. Now, this is better than a lifetime guarantee to us because the capstone promise of our chapter is that God guards us from this time forth and what? Forever. Forever. God's job of protecting your soul, Christian, does not stop the day you die. Rather, it is eternal and continues forever into eternity. That God says, I protect your soul every day and forevermore. Beloved of God, there is no greater life than to bask under God's protective hand that he cares for us. He guides us, he keeps us, he protects us now and forevermore. This is his promise to you, Christian. When we live with this great hope, God becomes more precious to us than anything else in the world. You can get fired. Kids can do all kinds of crazy stuff. A lot of issues you could face in ministry. It's okay. God, you have it under control. You said you'll protect me. You'll see your perfect purposes through. I can cling to you. I can rest in you. In Psalm 73, the psalmist clung to God. And he asked this, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What precious words of encouragement. Everything can go wrong, but God, you are the strength of my life. You are the, my portion forever. Child of God, no matter what you face, in the journey that you take ahead, remember God is in complete control and that he always cares for your soul. You're always in his tender care. And with that confidence, every time a care, whether it's big or small, comes your way, you can cast your care upon God knowing that he truly, personally cares for you. What ought we to do? Therefore, we ought to choose to live a life of praise and rejoicing in God's promise, care for us, in the path of life that we take. Christian, make it your daily ambition to boast of God's care and love for you that you're held fast in his hand. Pray to God, sing to God, and worship God because he cares for you now and he cares for you forevermore. As I prepared this text and as I worked through this chapter, as I thought about it, I thought there could be no other fitting conclusion to our time of seeking to be those more fitted to worship God as he's called us to worship him than to share with you and to remind you of Jude's final words of conclusion to the saints there to whom he wrote. In Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a powerful, mighty, awesome God. And Father, we thank you that you have allowed and planned and orchestrated that as we journey the path of life as your own, that there will be challenges, that there will be trials, and that we can rejoice in those trials knowing that they force us to look to you. 
Father, you know the needs of each heart this morning. Father, you know the prayer requests, you know the, the things that weighed us down, the frustrations, the heartaches, the concerns. Oh, Father, we pray that our view of you would be massive, would be overwhelming. And Father, we would see that we are safe, we are secure in your care. Father, that all of your power in creation is available to us when we call upon you, that you are our great helper. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are a God that is in us, that you are for us, and that you go before us in your victory in Christ. Father, we rejoice in our life in Christ. We rejoice in the cross that you took all of our sins and gave us yourself in your dear Son. And Father, causes, we pray, to be those that are faithful doers of your word. God, we want to worship you. We want to honor you. We want to praise you with hearts that are flame for your glory. Father, stir up the embers of our hearts day after day. Remind us through your spirit of these truths. So, God, that we would be those that live for the praise of your glory so that we'd be more fitted and prepared for eternity when we gather together as saints around your throne to worship and adore, to bow before our Savior, our Redeemer, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, to you we give all the praise and glory. We look forward, O oh God, to being in your presence. Until then, O oh God, through your grace and for your glory, we would be faithful. We'd be those that live for you and you alone. Oh, God, bless these people. Cause your face to shine upon them. May they know your favor. God, encourage them every day as they walk with you. To you be all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.